Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. You can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. We'll visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education and former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author Jim McTagg will be joining us as well. It is June the 27th, and on this day in 1950, President Harry S. Truman announced that he was ordering U.S. air and naval forces to South Korea to aid the Democrat nation in repulsing an invasion by communist North Korea. The United States was undertaking the military, uh, major military operation, he explained, to enforce a United Nations resolution calling for an end to hostilities and to stem the spread of communism in Asia. In addition to ordering the U.S. forces in Korea, Truman also deployed the U.S. 7th Fleet to Formosa, which is now Taiwan, to guard against invasion by communist China and ordered an acceleration of military aid to French forces fighting communist guerrillas in Vietnam. <clears throat> Vietnam goes all the way back to this time, point in time. As a Yalta conference towards the end of the World War II, the United States the USSR and Great Britain agreed to divide Korea into two separate occupation zones. The country was split along the 38th parallel with Soviet forces occupying the northern zone and Americans stationed in the south. In 1947, the United States and Great Britain called for free elections throughout Korea, but the Soviets refused to comply. In May 1948, the Korean Democrat People's Republic, a communist state, was proclaimed North Korea. In August, a Democratic Republic of Korea was established in South Korea. By 1949, both the United States and the USSR had withdrawn the majority of their troops from Korean Peninsula. At dawn on June 25, 1950, 90,000 communist troops of the North Korean People's Army invaded South Korea across the 38th parallel, catching the Re Republic of Korea's forces completely off guard and throwing them into a hasty southern retreat. On the afternoon of June the 25th, the U.S. UN Security Council met in an emergency session and approved a U.S. resolution calling for an immediate cessation of hostilities and the withdrawal of North Korean forces to the 38th parallel. At the time, the USSR was boycotting the Security Council over the UN's refusal to admit People's Republic of China and so missed its chance to veto this and other crucial UN resolutions. On June 27th, President Truman announced to the nation and the world that the United States was would intervene in the Korean conflict in order to prevent the conquest of an independent nation by communism. Truman was suggesting that the USSR was behind the North Korean invasion, and in fact the Soviets had given tacit approval to the invasion, which was carried out with Soviet-made tanks and weapons. Despite the fear that U.S. intervention in Korea might lead to open warfare between the United States and Russia after years of a Cold War, Truman's decision was met with overwhelming approval from Congress and the U.S. public. Truman did not ask for a declaration of war, but Congress voted to extend the draft and authorize Truman to call up reservists. On June the 28th, the Security Council met again and in a continued absence of the Soviet Union passed a U.S. resolution approving the use of force against North Korea. 
Uh, June the 30th, Truman agreed to send U.S. ground forces to Korea, and on the 7th of July, the Council recommended all U.N. forces sent to U Korea be put under the U.S. command. The next day, General Douglas MacArthur was named commander of the U.N. forces in Korea. In the opening months of the war, the U.S.-led uh, U.N. forces rapidly advanced against North Koreans, but Chinese Communist troops entered the fray in October, throwing the Allies into a hasty retreat. In uh, April 1951, Truman relieved MacArthur of his command after he publicly threatened to bomb China in defiance of Truman's stated uh, war policy. Truman feared that an escalation of fighting with China would withdraw the Soviet Union into the Korean War. By May 1951, the Communists were pushed back to the 38th parallel and the battle line remained in the vicinity of the remainder of the war. On July the 27th, 1953, after two years of negotiation, an armistice was signed, ending the war and reestablishing the 1945 division of Korea that still exists today. Approximately 150,000 troops from South Korea, the United States, and participating UN nations were killed in Korean War, and as many as one million South Korean uh, civilians perished. One million. An estimated 800,000 communist soldiers were killed and more than 200,000 North Korean civilians died. The original figures of the North American troops lost, 54,246 killed, became controversial when the Pentagon acknowledged in 2000 that all U.S. troops killed around the world during that period of the Korean War were incorporated into that number. For example, an American soldier killed in a car accident anywhere in the world from June 1950 to July 1953 was considered a casualty of the Korean War. Hmm. Looks like there's a pattern here for government making up numbers. But anyhow, if there's uh, deaths subtracted from the 54,000 total, leaving just the Americans who died from whatever cause, the Korean theater of operations, the total U.S. dead in the Korean War was 36,516 major losses uh, for the United States, but not the 54,000 originally claimed. North Korea marked the anniversary by denouncing, and I'm talking about this happened just uh, today, yesterday. North Korea marked the anniversary of denouncing the Western aggression and vowed re uh, revenge. And again, there's a, they're sending off ballistic missiles and doing all kinds of mischief that goes unchecked at this point. Well, Wall Street's main indexes jumped sharply on Friday in a broad rally as signs of slowing economic growth and recent pullback in commodity prices tempered expectations for the Federal Reserve's rate hike plans. All 11 S&P 500 sectors ended higher, with the Dow soaring more than 800 points. Financial markets have been roiled on worries that rapid rate hikes by the Fed to rein in 40-year high inflation could cause a recession. Investors have been gauging when the market might hit its bottom after the benchmark's 500 S&P 500 ended this month, earlier this month, recorded a 20% drop from its January closing peak. So that means the uh, definition of a bear market. U.S. consumer sentiment fell to its record low in June, but Americans saw a marginal improvement in the outlook for inflation. So uh, right now, markets uh, looks like they could start on a positive note this morning. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, futures up uh, 94, but we'll see. We've seen a lot of Volatility in the market intraday and uh, could end up down, could end up up. We, we just don't know. Well, Donald Trump appeared in Illinois on Saturday evening holding a rally for Representative Mary Miller, one of his endorsees for the House of Representatives. As you would expect, though, the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, which overturned the non-existent constitutional right to an abortion, took center stage. 
The former president took to the podium to take a much-deserved victory lap, addressing the monumental moment the country is currently passing through. Chants of thank you, Trump, rang out, overtaking the speech at one point. I absolutely love to see it, and Trump, despite his direct role in getting us here, remained humble, not taking all the credit and praising those who prayed and fought for the outcome for decades. Congratulations, he told the crowd, noting the hard work and countless judicial appointments it took to reach this result. Trump went on to commend the Supreme Court justices who joined the majority in Dobbs, noting that they endured a relentless campaign of harassment and violent threats, including the attempted assassination of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The former president also nailed the Democrat Party and the two-tiered justice system of justice that allowed these threats to build without much, if any, pushback. He then compared the hysteria over January 6th with the shoulder shrugs directed at the attacks on the Supreme Court. But while Trump chose not to singularly focus on his personal and seeing Roe overturned, I do think he deserves immense credit. I've seen some on the right, usually suspects, attempting to downplay the former president's uh, part in nominating three justices who ultimately provided the votes necessary to end abortion as federally protected right. Often their arguments boil down to, well, any Republican would have made those picks, but that's absolute nonsense and history is on our side on this matter. For 50 years, various Republican presidents have had a chance to put justices on the court who would overturn Roe and its equally asinine sister opinion, Casey. For 50 years, they muscled a sizable portion of their picks. To put it in perspective, Republicans had the chance to save millions of lives decades earlier, but Anthony Kennedy, who authored Casey, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, and John Roberts ended up and put the court uh, put on the court instead. So to make matters even worse, former President George W. Bush only selected Justice Samuel Alito, who authored the Dobbs decision, after he attempted to put a pro-abortion squish named Harriet Myers on the Supreme Court. And of course, Mitch McConnell deserves credit for stopping the confirmation of Merrick Garland. Can you imagine if he was on the court? Paving the way for Justice Neil Gorsuch. But it was Trump who should be uh, get the credit for being the primary catalyst. Without his defeat of Hillary Clinton and his willingness to listen to the conservative judicial movement, none of this would be happening. No, no one can take that away from him, quite frankly. He gave, uh, promotes himself quite a bit on this. He was pretty humble, though. So, And by the way, Mary Miller, who's uh, in Illinois and a U.S. representative right now, is a terrific candidate for Congress to, uh, to reelect her uh, in this upcoming midterm elections. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is vowing to fight in Congress to codify Roe v. Wade after the Supreme Court overturned the landmark decision. Democrats will keep fighting ferociously to enshrine Roe v. Wade into law of the land, Pelosi said. This cruel ruling is outrageous and heart-wrenching, she said. The California Democrat called the decision a slap in the face to women about using their own judgment to make their own decisions about their reproductive freedom. Democrats also tried to codify Rose v. Wade in law in the past, but it never passed Congress. In September, Democrat-led House uh, passed the Women's Health Protection Act, but the bill didn't move forward to the Senate. After the draft opinion of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade leaked in May, Democrats in the Senate tried to pass legislation to codify Roe, but Republicans were able to block the measure. Realizing they lacked the votes to codify the right to abortion in the law in 50-50 Senate, Democrats are calling for their base to mobilize and vote in November. This fall, Roe is on the ballot, said President Biden at the White House on Friday. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy... 
right to privacy. What about all this nonsense that we're going to get vaccine mandates and we're going to ask you if you've been vaccinated? So there's this is just uh, false rhetoric here. They're all on the ballot. Until then, I'll do whatever I can in my power to protect women's rights in states where they face the consequences of today's decision. Uh, Senator uh, Schumer, Senator Schumer said the decision to overturn Roe made crystal clear the contrast between both parties in the November election and so forth. In other words, forget inflation, immigration, energy prices, and all the things that we've done to screw up the country. Vote for Democrats to codify codify, uh, Roe v. Wade. Pure nonsense. By the way, abortion clinics in multiple states closed their doors on the 25th following the decision. But uh, there's one woman, uh, Alicia, what's her name? Uh, uh, Leticia James. A New York State Attorney General told reporters in New York State will pay for women to come to the Empire State to abort their babies. She made the announcement early Friday at Rose V's Way's uh, ruling was announced. New York will set up a fund that will pay for travel, housing, and for daycare and free abortion for all takers. That's <laughs> So you can see uh, there's this is not an end to abortion. In fact, uh, she's going to pay for travel, and uh, they, that way older siblings can actually be in town when their mother kills a younger sibling. <laughs> kind of crazy. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. 
Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can download the app and find out more by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. I hope you'll check it out. And It's good for kids of all ages, including you and I, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So let's talk about what's happening around the world and start off with the G7 Summit that includes seven nations. And uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it's been a it's been a summit where they've come to a number of agreements. Um, number one, of course, to increase sanctions on Russia. B, to work together to continue to support Ukraine. Understanding this may be a, a long haul. Um, number three, not related to Ukraine, a decision to create a investment fund of I think I think they're talking about a couple of hundred billion dollars. Ultimately, trying to use um, private sector money as much as possible to uh, compete with China's uh, attempt to build infrastructure all over the world, their um, third wave, or whatever it's called, that the Chinese have been doing in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, the G7 have agreed to come together and create a competitive fund to that um, to try to build infrastructure in different parts of the world, in the developing world, and not allow China to be the only people operating there, which I think is an important step. Now, now China, I think China's ultimate uh, goal is to control the infrastructure they're building. In other words, to kind of bankrupt the countries that are using the infrastructure. And uh, I I hope, you know, in other words, I think you have to acknowledge what the motivation might be for China to do this. Well, there's two two motivations. Obviously, number one is what you're saying. I mean, they've definitely, there's been some serious problems in the cost factors and everything involved in that. And the other second thing is to increase their influence all over the world. Right. And, um... The, you know, the G7 and America and everybody else has been a little bit behind the ball when it's come to that. And I think this is a, a positive, positive step um, to um, attempt to, to compete with China. And the G7, they seem to be working very well together. Um, and they're, you know, working, um, working as a group. What can I say? The, the seven leaders sitting together in a room. Uh, coming up with ideas, or some, some ideas, of course, have been coming up with, but batting them around and coming up to solutions, and I think sometimes that really works. Now, let me ask uh, about a very basic question. We've got uh, the G7 includes uh, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, and the United States. Uh, how, do, how does one get in at or out of the G7? I think you have to be two things. I think one is the, it's the size of the economy, and you have to be a democracy. Hmm. Are those that's, the, that's uh, the key? I'm not sure why Canada quite makes it, but they've always been close, close allies in the United States. They somehow fall, automatically fit in there. All right. Well, thanks for that. So they're all close allies of the United States. Keep that in mind, also. Yeah. Good. None, none of the G7 have ever ever is not a right word, but certainly since World War II, none of them have ever 
uh, been anything less than a full ally of the United States. Well, thanks for that explanation, Mark. So uh, let's move to the Ukraine and what's going on. So in Ukraine, the Russians have seen some some success in conquering the city. They've been uh, battering now for it took them four weeks, so five weeks, I would say, for the whole. In other words, the the whole effort of the Russian army over the last five weeks has been to conquer this one city. They succeeded. They you know they pulverized it into total rubble and and um, advanced. Um, you know, so on one hand we could say, well, the Ukrainians lost lost this, but when you think about it, it took the whole Russian army yeah. four weeks to conquer one city. If World War Two had been well, World War Two sort of end, sort of turned on that in terms of Stalingrad. But if World War Two had taken that way, you know, we'd still be fighting World War Two. Yeah. So um, let's keep that in mind. The Ukrainians put up stiff resistance, and now it seems the Ukrainians are starting to get some of the the Western arms that um, that can make a difference. In other words, some of the smart artillery and missiles and things of that nature. And um, I would guess that over the next six to eight weeks, they'll have much more smart munitions than the Russians have. And um, that makes a big difference, obviously. Uh, you know, it just, it, to the, the uh, massive amount of artillery that's being used in this war is just unbelievable to me. I mean, it's just... Uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars of uh, artillery in, in order to... This is kind of a regional conflict right now. It's just uh, unbelievable. Right. Most of it, of course, is Russian. They, they basically seem to have all of their uh, their whole arsenal from from World War II to the Cold War. They've managed to keep their artillery shells, and that's what they're using, all of it. So mm-hmm. they have money more than the Ukrainians do. Um, the Ukrainians have been limited to some extent until now because most of the artillery was old Russian artillery. And only over the next last six to eight weeks has some of the Western artillery come. Now it's coming in larger numbers. And of course, with that comes uh, Western ammunition because the ammunition is not uh, usable. What the, what the West makes does not fit into the Russian cannons and vice versa. Right. Uh, so that will make a difference over a period of time. Um, but yes, it also... It brings up the old question that we always have to worry about. You know, we think about World War II, right? And we think about the vast numbers of American ships and planes. And, you know, FDR had had, had a plan, 10,000 planes a, a year. And the United States made that, and, you know, made 50,000. And, you know, tanks were turning out by the thousands and thousands. And now we make things in the dozens, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, they're very expensive and they're very powerful, you know, we're making a big mistake. Um, and is, you know, uh, is more always better, or do you want smaller and, and more of certain things? And I think we fundamental questions need to be asked. And too often I feel like the companies that are making it that are deciding for everybody. I agree with that. So uh, Russia, uh, number one, as, uh, as I understand it, is it defaulting on their debt and also apparently a decision by... NATO or perhaps the G7 not to sell gold uh, to uh, right, Russia. The G7 not to, not to buy Russian gold. They defaulted on their debt. Their inflation rate is now 17 percent, and um, they're hurting, but they're also doing well on the other hand because um, the price of oil is up. And even though they can't sell the oil to the United to Europe and parts of the United States, they are selling more oil now to China and to. Um, also, other places, India and places in Asia, and with, at a higher price, they're not hurting for that. 
the big challenge is to turn off the Russian natural gas, and that requires alternative sources. Everyone's rushing around to try to find it, um, but it's a challenge. Yeah. And um, the key is to be challenged for, by next winter. So I, I just, uh, in summary, this conversation, I would suggest that the, the number one thing that could perhaps halt this uh, uh, invasion into uh, Ukraine would be uh, the Russians running out of ammo. Possibly. I mean, look, what, what happens is they, they use dumb ammo instead of smart ammo, right? Uh-huh. Now, what's the result of... Let's go back one, one step. Please understand that almost everything Russia is doing and has been doing is a violation of all the norms of war that were established post-World War II. Yes. All the laws of war, everything, you know, no concern at all for civilian casualties, not to mention when they actually have actually killed civilians and done things like that, but straight out, no no concern whatsoever, no attempt at limiting civilian casualties, attacking residential areas, etc. Part of the reason is they don't have the ability because they don't have smart weapons, or they don't have enough smart weapons, and B, they don't care. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that Russia is violating all the norms that have existed and were created after World War II. Scary thought. Um, they just don't care. Yeah. Um, now, they still have a lot of dumb ammunition, and I'm quite sure they're able to keep on making dumb ammunition. Ah. Smart ammunition requires some Western parts, which are very hard for them to get to. So um, the Ukrainians will have an advantage in the battlefield, but the Russians still are a much bigger country with bigger reserves. So we'll have to see how that works out over over a period of time. All right. This is not going to end anytime soon. Let's put it that way. Okay. Thank you, Mark. So let's move. Uh, you should tell our listeners that you're in Tel Aviv and have been for the last eight months or so, uh, or perhaps longer. I'm not sure. But uh, the Israelis are apparently going to be having a new, a new election. It looks that way. We'll know for sure in the next few hours. I have to say you were prescient last week because you brought this up and when we were speaking uh, yes, last week on Monday morning, uh, there had not been any um, indication that it was all going to fall apart very quickly. By a few hours after we spoke, suddenly there was an announcement uh, from the Prime Minister Bennett and the alternative Prime Minister Lapid that uh, they weren't able to hold together enough the coalition together and they were going to call for new elections. And that's what happened last Monday night. And at this point, the, the Israeli parliament is meeting, and they're probably going to vote to disband either tonight or tomorrow and hold elections on the 1st of November. Uh, what happened is twofold. Number one, it was always a very fragile coalition spanning from right-wing um, people like Prime Minister Bennett to all the way across the spectrum, including, uh, for the first time, representatives of, of a small Arab party. Arab-Israeli party. And that just had a hard time holding. And um, on both sides of the spectrum, on the far right and the far left, um, they couldn't they couldn't understand why they had to make compromises sometimes. And they weren't willing to make the compromises. And when that happens, of course, you eventually lose your, your coalition, and that's what happened here. Yeah, the um, Israelis are usually known for their pragmatism, it seems to be. <laughs> pragmatism it? will be the fifth election in the last four years. Wow. So that's not necessarily very pragmatic. No, I mean, it's really Part it is. of the whole issue, of course, is the fact that uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu refuses to retire. And he, if he would retire and step down, there would be a coalition in two minutes. Huh. But at least 50% of the country, or 48%, or some high percentage, refuses 
to accept him as a prime minister. He's under indictment on a whole series of serious crimes, and he's in the middle of a trial. Um, so in almost any other country in the world, the prime minister would step aside until at least the trial was over. So, unless um, he felt unless he felt the charges were unwarranted and uh, felt yeah, that's but 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 there's been enough facts presented in this case to show that uh, you know exactly what he's going to be found guilty of. It's not a hundred percent clear, but he's clearly guilty of of violating a fair number of Israeli laws at this point. That's quite clear from the from the trial up to now. Okay, so. But, you know, you can, if you look at the United States and you look at times when people have been accused, and sometimes the, the best way of doing it is just to, to stand your ground and ignore it. That's right. what he's been doing as much as he can. Uh, so what are the possibilities of Netanyahu gaining power again? 50-50. Yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> I know I can't be more, more specific, but it's impossible at this point. Understood. Uh, it, it really comes down to the number of people who come out to vote and things of that nature and uh, it's very hard to know. I mean, are people tired of elections one more time? The same basic parties, the same basic people, the same basic ideas, which are a lack of ideas. Um, so we'll have to see. All right. Um, so let's move to a nor- There's this horrible attack, a gay pride parade, apparently in Oslo, Norway. 19 people killed in a terror attack. Uh, let's hope you put some meat on the bones and let us know what happened. You're right. I, don't, I think it was 19 wounded. I think only two people were killed, actually. Oh, good. Um, we don't, they don't know for sure. The person who, who did it was an ex-Iranian. And was it a terror attack? Was it a anti-gay attack? Which I don't know if there's a real difference. It's not quite clear. Um, but um, the man, you know, we, we always have this problem, right? Anyone who does something terrible, we say, is disturbed. Uh-huh. Which obviously you are if you do. To, you know, I, I think anyone who shoots lots of people have to be has to be disturbed in some form or another, right? I would say that anybody uh, who kills somebody else is disturbed, <laughs> frankly. Right. Well, you know, okay. Accidentally, sometimes you kill people. Yeah. I suppose. Right. But leave that part aside. So, um, a disturbed individual who was upset about the, you know, he, he did this outside a gay, a gay bar, and um, again, Norway is not is not known for its violence, but. Uh, you know, we, we've seen it before. We saw it in Sweden. We see it from time to time. Um, and then particularly amongst the immigrant population, there is a particularly problematic uh, segment of the population. So, what, are the, what, is, the, uh, what is the gun law in uh, Norway? I actually don't know. I was going to look that up, and I forgot to. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the gun laws are in Norway, to be oh. honest with you. Well, there was another tragedy in, in South Africa. Let's, let's uh, focus on that. Yeah, that's really an, int- an intriguing and very, very sad tragedy. Um, there was a nightclub with teenagers, 13 to 17-year-olds, and they found 18 of them dead. And there's one theory that it was a stampede inside the nightclub, but they're not really sure if that really the case. I mean, to kill that many people is really hard to understand how that ca- could happen. I can't imagine... You know, inside, I can't imagine a nightclub where there's an inside stampede and 18 kids get killed. It seems, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine just the whole story. I mean, the police commissioner said he just couldn't, he came to the morgue and he just broke down in tears. He couldn't, he couldn't take it. So there was violence involved. I, the one thing that popped into my mind in the absence of information is that perhaps the, the drinks were spiked. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's all speculation at this point but yeah. it's a terrible tragedy i mean 
again, uh, kids and you know teenagers, in the, not quite the prime. They haven't made the prime of their lives all just dead all of a sudden. So sad. Um, you know, this, the world is full of tragedies. Obviously, we all know that. And whether it's shootings or deaths or wars, um, but you know, when it's kids, it's particularly problematic. I should mention, though, you know, that we talk about kids. Um, the F, the estimate at the moment is 350 children in Ukraine have been killed. So huh. we have to put things in perspective. Also, there are a lot of kids being killed in Ukraine every single day. Um, so you know, it's not a not a peaceful world at this point. Let's put it that way. No, it isn't. I'd be curious uh, and, uh, if the uh, United States has uh, now passed uh, uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. Kind of unique in, in the sense that uh, usually uh, they don't overturn previous Supreme Court uh, rulings. But what percentage of the world, or can you make a comment on uh, countries that uh, that allow abortions uh, around the world? Okay, so let's look at it from two perspectives. First of all, the United States, Poland, and there was one other country, are the only three countries that have put additional restrictions on abortions um, over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. In other words, in every country in the world except those three, over the years there have been less and less restrictions and not more and more restrictions. Uh-huh. Um, I don't have an exact number, um, but basically all of Western Europe, including now Italy and Ireland, Ireland passed a referendum to allow, uh, allow abortions, um, even though it's a very Catholic country. So all of Western Europe, um, all of uh, you know Australia, New Zealand, all of those places allow abortions. Um, there are you know the the, the variety is um, between almost you know there's restrictions almost everywhere, at least on late-term abortions. Yeah. Um, there are very few restrictions in very few countries, except Poland again has become very much gone the other way on early term early term abortions. Interesting. I would have not um, guessed that. The United States. Hmm? I would not have guessed that. So thanks for that clarification. I would have guessed that most countries, especially in Africa and other places, would not allow or have rules laws against abortion. Remember something. You know, rules against abortion are very much rooted in countries that are particularly Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there are restrictions in India. I'm not positive about that. Um, and, of course, China, during the one-child you know, one policy, obviously, uh, there was a lot of abortions going on. Sure. Um, so, the uh, uh, United States, let me put this, like I said, the uniqueness of what just happened with Roe versus Wade is the fact that it went the other way. In other words, almost all over the world, there's been loosening of restrictions. And um, the United States is the first place that's gone over, one of the few places that's gone the other direction. It's, it's, been, covered, it's been covered widely all over the world. It's been headlines all over the world. Huh. Um, and, um, you know, a little bit of trying to understand the United States, sometimes difficult for people outside of the country to, to understand. them. sometimes difficult for people inside the country to understand, obviously. Um, but... You know, overall, the United States is in a very strange place, and now I'm talking with my hat as an American historian, as in that um, there, there always has been this pendulum in the United States between uh, a liberalization and then a re- and then a, um, a a pendulum the other direction. Yeah. Um, but now we sort of have one of these strange situations where we have seem to have two pendulums, and and they're not in sync, and so. 
you know, the beauty of the American federated system government is only that allows local governments uh, to make decisions and do things differently, etc. But on the other hand, the United States became the United States and not, an, you know, not the confederation of states because it needed a central government. And then there's the interstate commerce laws. And so there can't be that many barriers between states. And I think um, current developments is going to make things very, shall we say, interesting Yeah. in the coming years. And interesting is not always good. Well, I, I agree. I, the, uh, my personal opinion is that Roe v. Wade was a bad decision simply because the, uh, the federal government didn't have authority to uh, intervene in that issue. That is a state's rights issue, and therefore uh, the state should be making the decisions from state to state. So certainly abortion hasn't been overturned, but it's certainly going to be more difficult for women to get abortion in some states. Well, my only disagreement with you would be I can see Roe being a possibly problematic decision in that it created new rights, and that's a different question and different argument. Right. But on the other hand, um, it's not clear if you claim that there is that right in the Constitution. That's the argument, right? Right. can Can you understand from the Constitution the right of privacy and from the right of privacy to get to abortions. If you can, then the, the, the federal government's view or the Constitution's view over, overrides the states. Um, so I don't think that really is the issue. I think the issue is really uh, interpreting the Constitution. Yeah. And if you don't think that, that right exists, well, then, the, state, then the, the, doesn't, the right doesn't exist on a federal level, and therefore automatically goes to this. I wish we could continue this conversation, Mark. So interesting. I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Again, Mark Schumann, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Check out the website. It's really great. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Some great information on the website, and I hope you'll check it out and get tickets. It's golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Our focus is on high school and college students, and we endeavor to inspire and educate them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, private enterprise, and personal character, the values that we think made America great in the first place. And we do that through our very uh, robust website, fee.org, where you'll find daily uh, commentary and also uh, lots of videos and word about upcoming events, in-person seminars, uh, and so forth, not only in this country, but around the world. Yeah, I mean, great organization. And if you have a young person in your life, high school or college age, please introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education. It can be life-changing in a very positive way. Larry, you wrote a piece on the origins of vandalism. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Well, I used the opportunity of an anniversary to talk about this subject, Bob. 1,567 years ago, on uh, this or in this very month, June of the year 455, hmm. uh, the Eternal City of Rome was sacked by vandals. Uh, it was not the first time that Rome had been ravaged, and it would not be the last. The very first sack of Rome. Uh, occurred way back in 387 B.C. uh, when uh, Celts pillaged uh, the city, but of course it recovered. Then in 410 A.D., uh, with the Roman Empire in its last uh, decades, the Visigoths, uh, led by the chieftain Alaric, uh, burned and murdered and ransacked for three days in Rome uh, and then left the city. And then, of course, the very last sack of Rome would be in 476 A.D. That's when the Western Roman Empire fell and uh, the beginning of the Dark Ages began. But on, um, in 455, in this month, June, it was the Vandals, uh, a Germanic uh, tribe, uh, sacked Rome and did a great deal of damage. And I thought about that uh, actually more than uh, a year ago as we saw Minneapolis and New York and Portland and Chicago in 2020 in particular uh, go up in flames. Uh, The difference was, of course, that the barbarians who assaulted Rome were foreigners (laughs) and those who were burning our cities were uh, Americans. Uh, But for Rome, it proved to be fatal and uh, the extent to which uh, the sack uh, of Rome in 455 contributed to the ultimate end of the Roman Empire is quite considerable. 
So interesting. Well, they were able to uh, withstand assaults uh, for many years, and obviously uh, the last assault was the by the vandals was the one that took them down. Although uh, it just reminds me uh, of uh, the state, we've come to know the enemy and the enemy is us type of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we see this internal harm being done by uh, citizens of the United States. It's very discouraging. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's a sign of the uh, erosion of character, for one thing. And as you know, that's something that I've talked a lot about in recent years. When uh, people in their own country, a country that has contributed so much to the progress of humankind, uh, when people go on a rampage destroying the private property of innocent people simply because of a political motivation, uh, that that's more than just a bad thing. It's a ba very bad sign, and um, it's something we've um, got to work on as a people because uh, that when you weaken yourself through your own destruction, you simply uh, leave yourself prey to be pushed around, maybe even conquered by uh, hostile foreign powers. Yeah, we're a republic, not a democracy, and it's just, just so uh, disturbing, actually, to see uh, the mob trying to create uh, pressure to do things that they want, as opposed to having a deliberate body, and I'm talking about now the legislature, to come up with good rules and good, uh, good law for us here in the United States. Yeah, oh, I, yeah and you see the same thing in the wake of uh, recent Supreme Court rulings. You see people who uh, do not want to play uh, a responsible role in the democratic republic. They see uh, court decisions that don't go the way that they think they should go. And it's not enough to participate in the political process to change things in their direction. They demand, uh, under threat of uh, intimidation or violence, that uh, uh, the, the process be uh, trashed uh, uh, just for their whims. And, uh, and that's you know, what holds a society together are things like consensus, recognizing that we've got a rule book and we have to follow it. But uh, a lot of these left-wingers uh, don't seem to care what the rules say. Yeah, was it free? Frederick Fa Frankfurter, I believe, uh, Felix Frankfurter, he said that uh, your freedom stops where when your fist reaches my nose. In other words, uh, you, you're free to protest, but you just can't do it to harm other people's property or person. That's right. Or tear down the system, uh, because the system itself provides uh, avenues of, uh, of change and redress of grievances and what have you. And, it, and you accomplish those things by rules, not by taking to the streets and, and threatening and intimidating other people. Absolutely. I, just to refer our listen now, uh, this, is, this wasn't on, does this column appear on fee? Uh, no, this was not on fee. This was at, at uh, El American. But everything I write goes on my personal website, so people can easily find it if they go to lawrencewreed.com. Lawrence W. Reed. I did not know that, Larry. All these years you've been on the show. So <laughs> it's good to know. LawrenceWReed.com is the website. And again, uh, Fee. Uh, visit Fee and, and introduce uh, your young people to uh, the website. It's terrific. F-E-E.org. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTagg. Jim is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's also the author of several books. His latest is, hey, no problem. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And those are just a couple of the initiatives. I hope you check out the website, vfga.org. We have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, lived in the Beltway for years, now up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and writing novels. His latest three are sequels, one after another. The first is Follow the Leader. The second is Shake the Money Tree, and just recently released No Problem. Jim, thanks for on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Bob. Always a pleasure, Jim. So uh, I want to start off by asking you about your thoughts on Roe v. Wade and uh, the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, yeah, first of all, you know, ha- having spent uh, 37 years in the news business, uh, a news cycle generally lasts about two weeks. <laughs> so this will be very controversial for the for the next two weeks. It will be hard for uh, either party to sustain uh, public enthusiasm in the form of uh, anger or support because uh, the public has a very short attention span. I look at polling today that says that over 50% of Americans oppose the Supreme Court overturning the Roe versus uh, Wade decision. Uh, But I would argue that most of those people haven't read the decision. <laughs> They've yeah. only read headlines about the decision, which really distort some of the content. 
and the uh, actual 213-page decision is on the Supreme Court website. Jim, I'm kind of losing you if you're uh, moving away from the wind. It probably ought to stay <laughs> close to the window. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm saying that most people probably haven't read the 213-page no. Supreme Court decision, which is fascinating. It's it's not too complicated, and it gives you a, a better sense of uh, where the court is coming from than the stories by uh, biased commentators in all our newspapers. So I would dismiss polls showing that Americans, by a large majority, are opposed to overturning abortion because I would argue that most Americans really don't understand the essential arguments. I would say that most Americans don't understand the Constitution, quite frankly. You know, uh, Jim, And what's interesting to me is, of course, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, uh, the president saying, now with this, we've got to make this a central issue of the midterm elections. Well, it's not going to be, to your point. You said two weeks, the news cycle's two weeks. I would suggest it's even less than that, but I, you know, let's just go on two weeks. People are going to be concerned about inflation and what's happening to their pocketbooks, and this is not going to be a major issue during the midterms. No, it's not. I'm thinking, you know, how many people do you know who are having abortions? Uh, I don't know anybody. I, I don't think a lot of people do, number one. Uh, number two, as an issue, it excites each party's base. But I don't think it's going to change the minds of uh, women in the Republican Party. I think uh. it's more, you know, energizing the Democratic base on the coast, on the two coasts. And, you know, the Democrats, uh, it's not going to help them prevent a Republican wave because, uh, you know, there are a lot of states beyond the two coasts. Well, in fact, Letitia James, who's the uh, New York State Attorney General, she says, hey, look, uh, bring your, uh, come to, uh, bring your family, come to New York, we'll pay for your travel, we'll pay for your hotel room, and you can get your abortion here at no cost. (laughs) 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 So trying to, creating kind of a travel abortion type thing going on. Yeah, that's a great way to uh, bankrupt the state. Yeah. But the... uh, I was also thinking that, you know, if there is, in fact, a Republican wave, it would be a great opportunity once more to try to reinvent the federal government. Uh, that's a term that Clinton and Gore used back, I think it was 1991, when they when they launched a program to make the uh, federal government operate more like a private enterprise and be more customer friendly. And they also looked to uh, shrink the uh, number of uh, federal employees. And they did have some success. I mean, I mean, like most government programs, it fell short. But yeah. I would argue that, you know, they did introduce the Internet to the federal government, which was a good thing. They got, they got the federal government on that train. The IRS, which was uh, more of a disaster than it is now, actually improved. And then President uh, Bush continued to trying to improve the federal government by outsourcing uh, more federal work, you know, to private entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then it ran out of uh, steam. I didn't see any really, I mean, under uh, President Obama, we had the expansion of the federal government with health care. Oh, even under President uh, Bush, we had the creation 
by Congress, not him, of the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, yes. Following, following the, the attacks on 9-11, President Bush created an Office of Homeland Security within the White House to coordinate the flow from like over 100 intelligence agencies. And it's it's a massive organization today, maybe one of the largest in, uh, in the federal government. Yes, that, that was Congress's handiwork. They forced that down uh, uh, President Bush's throat. You know, it was purely political. Look, we're doing something in the wake of the terrorist attacks. So, um, you know, even uh, President Trump, he talked about draining the swamp, but he didn't actually drain the swamp, and he created this Space Force, which uh, has about 16,000 employees, some of them private sector, but most of them are, wear Air Force hats. So, you know, I wonder, you know, that wasn't really draining the swamp. Yeah. And, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have done nothing to reform the federal government beyond uh, some programs aimed at, uh, you know, African-Americans. Well, I'll tell you this. I, I, I say that uh, this is not an original idea, but I would suggest that the way to, to reform the government and to reduce the size of government would be to, for example, move uh, the, uh, for example, uh, Department of Agriculture to someplace like uh, uh, Arizona or to uh, to uh, Nebraska to to move these various agencies to different places around the United States. I would suggest that a lot of people would retire early rather than leave the Washington D.C. area. And uh, be a good way to downsize because because right now uh, these public service unions get in the way of downsizing. Well, yeah, it's also a way to spread the wealth. Uh, Mitch Daniels actually proposed um, having a, a bidding competition the way the NFL does for its teams among uh, various states for the headquarters for the Department of Homeland Security, huh. and and that that flopped. Uh, but uh, you make a compelling argument. You know, the, the state with the worst educational outcomes is Mississippi. So why not put the Department of Education <laughs> in Mississippi? You know, um, uh, and then you're moving that federal payroll out of uh, Washington, which has become a powerful city-state like Athens. And then when you see all the corporations moving their headquarters inside the Beltway, it sends you a message that... Um, you know, there's too much power concentrated in Washington, D.C., private sector and government power, too much money. And uh, it underlines the fact that we're not a capitalistic country. We're a crony capitalistic country, which means that companies use their influence and leverage with the federal government to uh, have uh, positive outcomes against the competition. So, and it's one of the reasons, I would argue that crony capitalism is one of the factors behind inflation. It's not the primary factor. I would agree with that. As I heard one one public servant say, we got the best government money can buy. (laughs) So, (laughs) Jim McTague, again, I want to encourage you to read his books. His great murder mysteries are fantastic. Uh, Follow the Leader at Sequel. Uh, Shake the Money Tree, and l- most recent, really great read, No Problem. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got some great guests for tomorrow's show as well. 
Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends, uh, because that's a way to support our advertisers and who make this show all possible. Thank you so much for joining us again, and I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Ghost or wherever you are. Namaste. for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>